what is a Christian? We think, now that's kind of odd that that kind of question would be coming for a court decision, but that's what was happening. You see, it all started when one of the local bankers, or local doctors, had, had been very wealthy and he passed away. Well, in his will, he made a statement, and it read that, that it was discovered that he had left a large sum of money, about $75,000 back in 1949, to, well, let me just read the quote. $75,000 was left to persons who believe in the fundamental principles of the Christian religion and in the Bible and who are endeavoring to propagate the same. Did you catch that? He's leaving in his will $75,000 to persons who believe in the fundamental principles of the Christian religion and in the Bible and who are endeavoring to propagate the same. Well, when the will became public, uh, a dispute grew over exactly who in town were Christians that would receive this money. And, and therefore, you know, they, they had to be worthy of at least a portion or share of this amount of money of the doctors. So, so suits were filed and countersuits were filed. And, and eventually the court was given the responsibility of settling the issue. And each of the ministers in town was then invited to come in and to give to the court a description of what a Christian is. What is a Christian? So how do we identify who in our community is a Christian? And so they, they invited all these, these ministers in. They're representatives from all various denominations. I mean, there were Baptists, Catholics, Lutherans, Presbyterians, Methodists, and in fact, a few Unitarians were even invited. And they're all going to describe what a Christian is. So as you can imagine, there was a lot of difference of opinion in that courtroom about what it meant to be a Christian. Now, I'm sure that there was a lot of discussion of who deserved the money as well, but and that was probably probably pretty interesting. But who, who or what is a Christian? And this court was going to have to decide based upon this man's will. Well, and as you probably know, there's still quite a quite a bit of controversy over the question of what is a Christian. Many people say in America that they're Christians. And we know that, that being a Christian has something to do with the way we live. Some people think being a Christian has something to do with the country in which you live in. They're going to go to the Congo, Democratic Republic of Congo, make sure there's a difference there. And in these third world countries, sometimes when they hear of America, the United States, they think Christians. So we must be Christians because we live in the United States of America. Some people believe that to be a Christian, you have to belong to a certain political party or you choose a family in which you're born into and it determines whether or not you're a Christian. Because my family was all Christian, so therefore I guess I'm a Christian too. Some people even seem to refer to themselves as Christian by default because they're not Buddhist, they're not Muslim, they're not Jewish, they're not Hindu, therefore I must be Christian. What is a Christian? I mean, that's a good question. Other people think that, that only members of their particular denomination or non-denomination, that they're the only ones who are Christians only. And that can be very confusing because there are so many different kinds of churches out there. For example, as I was doing a research, one of the fellows had said that there's approximately 
267 different types of Baptists. I didn't know that. Well, I could probably say the same thing is true about the Christian church. Because after all, we're all independent, so there's probably thousands of different types of Christian churches. The Bible uses the word Christian three times. All right? Three times it uses the word Christian. In our passage of Scripture here today, in, in Acts chapter 11, in verse 26, it says, And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for the entire year they met with the church, and they taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. That's the first time. Then you turn over to Acts chapter 26, in verse 28, and King Agrippa, he replies to Paul in a conversation as Paul is standing before him in his court. And he says, in a short time, you will persuade me to become a Christian? That's the second time. The third time is written by Peter. And in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 16, Peter says, But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in his name. Now, this morning, I'm hoping that, that I, I, we can talk about what Christians should be like and what they should be known for. I mean, from this passage of Scripture that we're going to look at, we're going to see some things, just three things that I think are, are very relative to what a Christian is. And, and according to the Bible, there are some things that others should know about Christians. So maybe we can settle this debate. First is this, Christians should be known for their declaration of the gospel. In other words, they speak out. They're speaking out about what God has done in this world through Jesus Christ. And that gospel message, the good news, Christians are supposed to be sharing that with other people. And they're known for that. They're, oh, he's a Christian. All he does is talk about Jesus and he talks about God. And he talks. So they're known for speaking out about their faith. Let's look at verses, verses 19 through 21. So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen... They made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. Now that passage of Scripture begins in verse 19. It's reminding us about what happened way back then in chapter 7 when Stephen was stoned because Stephen was preaching to the people about what Jesus has done for them and what they did to Jesus. As a result of that, they drag him out of the city and they stone him to death. And then they begin this persecution of anybody who is, quote, a disciple or a follower of the way. Christ-like. So persecution breaks out and they have to leave Jerusalem and they fly out of city and they head different directions and they go up into Phoenicia and to Cyprus and eventually up into Antioch. Do you remember back when Stephen was sharing his faith? What happened? Remember what happened? Obviously they stoned him. But even as they are killing him, he looks up into heaven. And God gives him this beautiful vision. He says, look, behold, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the throne of God. 
and they gnashed their teeth. And as angry as they could be, they took his life. The Bible says that after his death, as this great persecution broke out, they went all over the place sharing the gospel message. The problem was, it seems like they were only sharing it with Jews. Maybe they hadn't really heard yet about what God had done up in Caesarea with Cornelius and his household. Anyway, as they fled, they they made their way up to Antioch. Now, Antioch is a northern part of the area there. It's the third largest city in the Roman Empire. The only two other larger cities were Rome itself and Alexandria. And Antioch had over 200,000 people living within their city walls. All right. There were a lot of people who were pagans there. They worshipped multiple gods. They, they were as uh, ungodly from our standards, as you might suggest. And they needed to hear about Jesus. And as they fled Jerusalem for their own safety, they took that gospel message with them, and they entered all the way up there 400 miles north of Jerusalem. And it said they were speaking the word to no one except the Jews alone. But some, some of them, they began to speak to the Greeks and to preach to the Greeks the good news about the Lord Jesus. And they were winning them over into a relationship with God through Jesus. And we see that there in Acts chapter 11, verse 1, the Greek word that is used for speaking to Greeks is a word that is used just for normal conversations. So they're not standing on the street corners proclaiming messages about the gospel. No, they're just having normal conversations with people. As they moved up into Antioch, they're just talking. And in their normal conversation, their normal speech, they're talking about what Jesus has done in their lives, and they're beginning to share their faith, and they're preaching through a normal conversation the good news about Jesus. There's a little bit of difference. And so what that does, it gives me an understanding that that we all can do that. If we're going to be Christians, then there's an expectation that we share the gospel message, that that we we, we speak it out and, and, and we live it that way. And so in our normal conversations with people, they know just by the conversation that we have a relationship with Christ. So if spreading the gospel is just the function of the preacher, tell you what, this world's in a sad shape then. Because I can't get to everybody. And the other preachers can't get to everybody. But it takes every one of us, just in our daily lives, sharing the gospel message. And if everyone who has put their faith and their trust in Jesus would just in normal conversations share this and feel the obligation of serving Him in that manner by telling others the good news, the gospel message is going to spread like wildfire. And people whom we don't even think need that, they'll receive it. Every Christian should sense his or her own responsibility to bear witness of him. And in Acts chapter 11, verse 21, it says, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. And see, sometimes I think we get that wrong. We think we're all by ourselves out there trying to share this. But when we have these normal conversations in which we introduce people to Jesus, the hand of the Lord is with us. And then people come to a relationship in which they want to put their faith and their trust in Him. 
So how does the church grow? I mean, they, they got the message right, and it got out, and the Bible says in these verses that they were speaking the Word and they were preaching the Lord Jesus. The written Word and, and the incarnate Word of Christ have got to go hand in hand. So what we have together here demonstrates to them who Jesus really is. So they grew because they had this powerful message, and they shared with, with anybody, and the power of God was the one that was bringing people to Him. Right? That's not us, and, and really that's what we're supposed to do here at First Christian. We're supposed to just have conversations with people in our daily lives. He doesn't ask you to go to Africa. Well, some he does, I guess. He doesn't ask you to stand on the streets of New York and and get on a soapbox and and preach that way. Or into the hills of Kentucky and cut down a tree and get on a stump. But he asks each and every one of us in our normal conversations as we go about, maybe in the marketplaces of life, just to let people know whom we have this relationship with. Stories told about a Chinese farmer who came to a, a, a missionary clinic, a, a, an eye clinic. And, and so he, he came in and, and the doctor had, had surgery on his eyes and he could see. Well, it wasn't too much later. In, in, in the few days, the doctor is looking out his window and he sees this guy coming back and he's holding a rope. And hanging onto that rope or a bunch of other blind people. And he has gone out into his world. And he has found other people who had the same problem he had. And he is now leading them to the doctor so that they too can have their sight restored. That, I think, is the perfect picture of what it is to be a Christian. We know what God has done for us in saving His Son Jesus to redeem us, to forgive us, and to give this this awesome gift of His Spirit in dwelling in us and find salvation of, of, of an everlasting life. And all we're supposed to go out into our world and find people who were just like we were and bring them into Him. That's what He's asking. He's not asking you to go someplace different. He, We are all geared certain ways. And there are people that you find yourself attracted to because you have a commonality in life. And he's simply saying, go get those people. Bring them in. Share with them what Christ has done in your life and be different. Now, the second thing that we need to understand is this, that Christians should not only be known for just this this demonstration of their speech, but also for the demonstration of grace. There's something about them that makes them stand out. Listen to what it says here in 22 through 26. The news about them, these Christians in Antioch, the news about them reached the ears of the church all the way back in Jerusalem, and then they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. And then he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, and he rejoiced and he began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. And he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year they met with the church and they taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. So what does Barnabas see after he's traveled 400 miles? That's not like us traveling 400 miles because it was a walking. Can you imagine that? I remember that the 101st Airborne Division was trained back in the 30s. 
to walk 50 miles a day. I mean, they, that's what, that was, can you imagine doing that? Being conditioned, 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 so that when you enter into the war, you've got the stamina to go. 50 miles a day. Well, if Barnabas was that condition, he could make it there in just a little over a week. So this is a, this is a good trip for him to do. And you wonder what's going through his mind as he's, as he's heard about these stories and they're setting, up, setting him up there to find out what is actually taking place. What's he see? He saw the grace of God. I mean, that's a fascinating statement that he saw the grace of God. But when I first heard that phrase, and I read it there in verse 23, I I thought to myself, well, how do you see the grace of God? I mean, we talk about it. We, We sing about it. We... We ask God for His grace, but how do you how do you see the grace of God? Is is there something different about them because the grace of about us? If we have received His grace, is there something different about us that's visibly noticeable? And that, but that's what He says. Wherever the grace of God is, I think it's going to be seen, and so it's it's displayed probably like in their countenance, in, in their facial expressions. We see that in Proverbs chapter fifteen, verse thirteen. It says, "A joyful heart makes a cheerful face." I had a guy I went to college with. Um, he was always rebuking us for telling jokes and laughing because Jesus never laughed. You don't find it anywhere in Scripture that Jesus laughed. You guys shouldn't be telling jokes. You shouldn't be, you know, should be serious. Oh, well, Ken, <laughs> I can't help but it, you know. And, and some of the things that Jesus said were funny, I thought. But it doesn't say Jesus laughed. But it talks so much about being cheerful, and you can't be cheerful without having a smile on your face. You can't be happy. You know, blessed are, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, but we're blessed through all those beatitudes can also be translated happy. So it's noticeable on our face. It's not only displayed on our countenance, but it's declared in our conversations. I mean, your homeland, where you're from, really it marks you. We know when somebody's from Minnesota, right? They come down and we know we, they've got that dialect, they've got that accent. We know whether they're from South Carolina. And I tell you, when I went and visited my sister, whew, some of them, you can't really understand what they say. They've got such a southern drawl. We know when they're from New York, New Jersey. My goodness, some of those people, they don't pronounce water correctly. You know? So we know, we we can identify people by their speech. But it's not just the sound, but we can also identify people by the things they say. Our words are important. Because they identify us. They, they, they let people know who we are and what type of person we are. Matter of fact, Jesus says it's not just your words, but it's your heart that makes you. It's not necessarily our speech. In Matthew chapter 12, verses uh, 34 to 37, he, he's talking to the Pharisees there, and, and he, he says, you're a brood of vipers, you know that? He says, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of which out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good. The evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. 
But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for in the day of judgment. For by your words, you'll be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. Our words are important and they identify us. The grace of God changes the manner in which a man speaks. One person put it this way, what's in the well of the heart comes up in the bucket of speech. I like that. So how we talk is important. But it's also demonstrated in in times of conflict. Notice that they were called Christians first there in Antioch. And the word Christian was coined by this heathen population there in Antioch to distinguish themselves as different. The followers of Christ, the worshipers of, of, were totally different than the worshipers of Caesar. There was something different about them. And so it was most likely used as a nickname that they gave them. Not one they took on themselves. It's one that the Antioch people started calling the, the Christians. Christians, yeah, you're like Christ, aren't you? This probably meant as a derisive term. But today, we take it in honor, don't we? The third thing I think we notice is this. The Christians should be known for their dedication to giving. I mean, mean, they just shell it out. Whenever there's a need, they give it. Matter of fact, our government even understands that the church in America is one of the most beneficent organizations out there. And they will time and time again turn things over to the church to let the church take care of it financially rather than tax-wise because they know the church. And the church always steps up when there's great needs. They know that Christians, they're just giving. Even our government understands that. Well, the Christians here, let's look what happens in verses 27 through 30. Now, at that time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus, he stood up and he began to indicate by the Spirit that there would be certainly be a great famine all over the world. And by the way, that took place in the reign of Claudius around year 44. And in the proportion of that, any of the disciples had means each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the, of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. So Christians should be giving people. I mean, that's something that's obvious in this passage. They recognize there's a need. This Agabus comes and says, there's going to be a big famine. It's going to take place all over the world. And so the church up there in Antioch, they decided, let's pull some of our resources together, and let's send some money down to Jerusalem and send it down there to to the church down there. Now, that's pretty remarkable when you think about it. I, I mean, for a long time, the Jews sort of looked down their noses at the Greeks, these non Jews. But here you've got the Greeks, the non Jews, being generous to those who were trying to ignore them to begin with. Can't you just imagine what happens? 
you know, they're sitting there talking about this, and, and one of the guys stands up as they're, as they're having a, a get-together, and he says, hey, you know what? Those guys down there in Jerusalem, they're going to need some help. Because we know that there's persecution breaking out down there. That's how the message came all the way up here. And, and I'll bet you they're not going to have money for food down there. Let's send them some money. Hey, that sounds like a good idea. And can you imagine when Paul, or with Saul and Barnabas, show up in Jerusalem with a just... I don't know how much it was. I don't know if they had to carry it in their backpacks or if they put it in their pocket. But obviously, there's probably enough that went down there to take care of them. And when they start handing this to the church there in Jerusalem, and the church says, where'd you get this? Oh, we got this from the Greeks up there in Antioch. You got what? Yeah. This is different. Instead of the mother church that creates other little churches, always supplying them. Now it's these other churches that are coming back and helping the parent. You've shared with us the message even though you didn't realize at first that God meant it for us as well. Let us show you that He has changed our hearts too. And they gave them a blessing. It's worth noting that the money, it's not flowing anywhere. But when they had the ability to do something, they gave. See, the church members up in Antioch, knowing that a famine is coming, they could have said, hey, hey, we need, we, need to, we need to take care of ourselves and look out for our own needs. Let the people down there in Jerusalem take care of themselves. But they didn't. They trusted God, and they gave their own finances to meet the needs. You know, I think there's a difference in Christians. And I think people see it in us. But if people don't recognize there's something different about you, if they can't see the grace of God in your life, can you really call yourself a Christian? I mean, that's what that court case was all about. What is a Christian? How do we identify if somebody is a Christian? I think it's found right here. The grace of God has changed who they are. And it, it can be seen. It can be heard. It can be demonstrated by the way we give and live. If you're a Christian, you've got to do that. If you're not, I want to tell you, it is unbelievable what He can do in your life. But you've got to be willing to let Him do it. We're going to give you an invitation.